hope, we may purify ourselves even as he is pure, that when he shall appear again with power and great glory, we may be made like unto him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where with thee, O Father, and thee, O Holy Ghost, he lives and reigns, one God, world without end. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, making it possible for everybody to have a seat. It's greatly appreciated. Well, for those of you, uh, I haven't seen you since last year, so in case you've forgotten where we are, we are in 2 Timothy. We are in chapter 4, and uh, we are coming down the home stretch, um, hence the title on the screen, The End of the Trail. Uh, it's not just the end of our trail in terms of studying this epistle, but it's also the end of the trail for the Apostle Paul, as you know. This, of course, was the last letter that he wrote while he was in prison, and these are among the last words that he wrote. And so we're going to take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 today, beginning at verses 6, 6, beginning at verse 6, and we'll read through verse 8. And that's probably all we're going to get to today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. The apostle writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, these are very somber words at this point in the epistle Paul has, for all intents and purposes, he has passed the torch. Now, the mantle of leadership has now passed from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Now, that's really what this epistle has all been about. Paul knew that his ministry was coming to a close. As I said, he was being held in Rome as a prisoner. Uh, he was awaiting trial before the emperor himself. He knew before long he would be taken out on the Ostian or the Appian Way, and um, he would be executed, and that would be it. And uh, this was a very dicey time in the life of the church. Of course, you know, one of the things is that you and I look back with the advantage of hindsight. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Darkest Hour. Anybody out there? Several of you have seen the movie, The Darkest Hour. If you haven't, I won't always commend movies to you because everybody has different tastes, but that's a movie well worth seeing. And I think what's so powerful about it is that you and I know how the story ends. We know the darkest hour really became, in many respects, their finest hour. But the powerful thing about this movie is that you are watching it from the standpoint of Churchill and the people at the time. And um, really, you get a, a real sense of the agony that they went through, the anxiety that they experienced with the British Expeditionary Force with its back against the sea and the German army coming and Churchill having to make a decision and really everybody, everybody, including members of his own cabinet being opposed to him and the loneliness that he felt. Um, as I said, it's very moving because we look at this and we know, of course, how Churchill inspired his people. But at that point, there was no guarantee of victory. It really was a very, very dark hour, and a great deal was on the line. Well, that's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. As he looked at the church, he knew that the Christian church was going through a systematic purge at this moment. 
Uh, the emperor was, at this very moment, trying to stamp out the Christian faith. He was using Christians as scapegoats for the destruction of Rome. And there would be other persecutions to come. New mystery religions were popping up all over the place, competing with the faith, uh, even drawing people who had been Christians away from the faith. And of course, Paul knew that he had to pass on the mantle of leadership. His time was coming to an end. But the question was, pass it on to who? And he was going to pass it on to this young man, Timothy, who we've already seen couldn't have been more different from Paul if he tried. Whereas Paul was this sort of this domineering, outgoing personality, we're told that Timothy was sort of shy and reticent, what we would probably call an introvert. Whereas Paul was hardy in terms of his physique and, and his health. He had been through so much, and yet he hardly looked worse for wear. Timothy, we're told, was a sickly man. Whereas Paul was in the, uh, the, the late afternoon of his glory, we're told, Timothy was a young man. And Paul had to encourage him to flee youthful passions. So just try to imagine Paul at this point as he knows it's all coming to an end. He's coming to the end of the trail. And what is he's doing is he's trying to take stock. He's given these final words to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Timothy, that's what you have to look forward to. Now go get them, tiger. But as for me, Paul says, as for me, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. So what does Paul do here? Well, Paul gives a summation. It's a summation of the letter, but it's also in many ways a summation of his life and his life's accomplishments. And what does this summation contain? Well, the first thing Paul says is, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I think it's significant that Paul acknowledges the fact that he's been in a battle. I think it's important that he acknowledges that he has been in a fight. And you'll notice he doesn't say, I have fought a good fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. You know, there are some people out there in the world that are combative by nature. But most people, I think, are probably conflict-averse. Most people really don't like to be argumentative or combative or to get into to, to fights with people. Now, we know there are some people that just go down the street sort of looking for a fight, looking to pick one. But most of us try to avoid conflict if we possibly can. It's an uncomfortable situation. But I think it's important that Paul acknowledges the fact that as Christians, and as he was a Christian, we're in a battle. We're in a fight. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you are going to be uncomfortable. I've got to tell you, you are going to be uncomfortable in the Christian life. A.W. Tozer, who is a great Christian writer, wrote a wonderful book entitled The Warfare of the Spirit. If you're looking for a good book to read, this is a great book, The Warfare of the Spirit by A.W. Tozer. And here's what he says at the beginning. He said, there is a kind of dualism in our fallen world which has accounted for most of the persecutions endured by believers since the days of Cain and Abel. There are two spirits in the earth, the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan, and these are at eternal enmity. 
The ostensible cause of religious hatred may be almost anything. The true cause is nearly always the same. The ancient animosity which Satan, since the time of his inglorious fall, has ever felt toward God and his kingdom. Satan is aflame with desire for unlimited dominion over the human family. And whenever that evil ambition is challenged by the Spirit of God, he invariably retaliates with savage fury. It is the Spirit of Christ in us that will draw Satan's fire. You ever heard the expression, you only catch flack if you're over the target? The people of the world will not much care what we believe, and they will stare vacantly at our religious forms, but there is one thing they will never forgive us, the presence of God's Spirit in our hearts. They may not know the cause of that strange feeling of antagonism which rises within them, but it will be nonetheless real and dangerous. Satan will never cease to make war on the man-child, and the soul in which dwells the Spirit of Christ will continue to be the target for his attacks. If you became a Christian and thought that you were joining on to a cruise ship, I've got news for you. You have joined a battleship, and you are in a struggle, and you are in a battle. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians? Take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 for just a moment. I want to point a couple of things out to you. I know that sometimes as Christians we would prefer to live quiet, peaceable lives. And as much as possible we should do so. But it won't be entirely possible. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, before I even go on, think about that. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace. Now, that sounds a little odd, given the fact that we refer to Jesus as the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. And he did come to bring peace, in one sense, peace between a sinful and fallen humanity and a holy and righteous God. You know, there's a reason why we say, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. The whole story of the human race is one of trespassing on God's territory, you see. What happens if you trespass on somebody else's territory, and they don't want you trespassing? Well, I, I remember where I grew up, there was a, fan, a fellow, he was a cantankerous old farmer, and he used to have these signs that he would hang around. But it said, beware of unidentified flying objects. They may be bullets. <laughs> There's a consequence, isn't there, when we trespass, when we break the law? Well, there's a consequence when we break God's law. The wages of sin? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we need to understand that you and I are at war with God, and Jesus did come to make peace between God and man. But here in this passage from Matthew chapter 10, he makes it very clear he did not come necessarily to bring peace between human beings. Now there's a possibility of that, but that's not why he came. What he says is, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Why? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For lo, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will ever surely find it. Now, those are not easy words. But I want you to understand, they're the words of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. I've not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And you say, well, why is that? Because that's what the truth does, my friends. The truth divides. There will always be those who will embrace the message, and there will always be those who reject the message. And as a result of that, there will be what? Eternal conflict. Make no bones about it. We should not be surprised, the Scripture says, when you are facing persecution or difficulty or insult for the sake of Christ. It's one of those things where Jesus continuously warned his disciples, and yet they continuously ignored him, and yet they were continuously surprised when what he had said came to pass. He said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that we are going through difficult times right now? Why are we surprised that we are having this lawsuit and all of that. No need to demonize the other side, but why are we surprised that we are in the midst of conflict when Jesus said this is precisely what you can expect to see? Truth has a function of light. It comes into a dark place. I've always said that whenever light comes into, when I was a kid, maybe I've shared this story with you before, but when I was a kid, we used to go out and hunt for snakes. I never liked them. Uh, to begin with, but um, it, where I grew up, you didn't have to worry about cotton mouths and, you know, rattlesnakes and that sort of thing. It was pretty much garden snakes. And uh, the boys in my neighborhood used to love to go out and, and look for snakes. And, and the best way to do it is you went out into a field and you'd look for an old log or a piece of plywood that somebody had thrown out. And what you would do is you would nimbly throw it over. And the first thing that happened when the light hit that area was what? All these little creatures that went scampering for darkness. That's what they did. And that's where you found the snakes. And the other thing that you found was the grass was so sickly and so white and matted down. But what was interesting is that if you went back just two or three days later, you looked at that same grass, it had suddenly turned green and it was growing again. And those creatures, they were gone. That's what light is going to do. When it shines into a dark place, you're going to notice that the creatures of the dark scamper. This is why I've always said, we like candlelight dinners when you're going to propose. <laughs> you do it under candlelight because everybody looks better under candlelight. Nobody does it under the fluorescence, folks. Because it reveals what? All of our cracks and our flaws and our blemishes. And who wants that to be shown? And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. Nobody wants to be told that they're a sinner. Let alone a miserable sinner. And yet that's what Jesus came to do, isn't it? When he came and he said, I'm the great physician, that implies that somebody's sick. When he comes and I said, I'm the savior of the world, that implies that somebody needs deliverance. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. And he said, I'm going to come into the world and I'm going to say that this is the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. And many people don't like that, do they? They take offense. On the part of those who take offense, there's oftentimes persecution. Turn to James for just a moment. James is one of those epistles that gets a bad rap. Um, But I would just remind you, regardless of what Martin Luther said, that it is nevertheless the word of the Lord. It made its way into Scripture, and you and I have to acknowledge it as the word of the Lord. Here's what James says in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I've got a little book on my shelf in my library written by F.F. Bruce, one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, and it's called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. We want the comforting words of Jesus, don't we? Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Praise the Lord. But Jesus said some rather hard things. If it was all ease, all comfort, he would have never been crucified. What Jesus spoke was the truth. And the truth has the power to liberate, but it can be painful. It can be painful. So the first thing I think that Paul acknowledges is that he's fought a fight. And we're in a fight. If you're a Christian, you're in a fight. There's no doubt about it. But Paul doesn't say, I fought a fight. He said, I fought the right fight. (laughs) I have fought the good fight. The fight that matters. I always tell the clergy, pick your battles carefully. You you can't fight everything. You, You can't die on every hill. So pick the battles that matter. Pick the fights that mean and make a difference. And that's what Paul did. Paul fought the fight that makes a difference. What fight is that? Well, you find it in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. He says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Do you know what he means by the evil day? I've told you this before. You know what the New Testament means by the evil day, that you may be able to stand in the evil day? The evil day is when opportunity and inclination meet. You you know how this works. There are times in our lives when we have an opportunity to sin, but we really don't have the desire. There are other times when we have the desire to sin, but we don't have the opportunity. The evil day is when the opportunity and the desire meet. And you never know when that's going to be. 
And that's why Paul says, put on the full armor of God, that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, we may think that, and it's not to say that, that flesh and blood don't play a part in it, but that's not really the cause. That's not the root issue. Isn't that what Tozer said? He said, it may look like it's the world that is battling against us, but the reality is it is Satan who is inspiring the world. The devil. And though this world with devils filled should what? Threaten to undo us. Isn't that what we say in a mighty fortress is our God? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 24. I know we're skipping around a lot, but it's important that you understand what Paul is trying to say. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 4, Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. I think it's very interesting that Jesus is warning them about the persecution to come, but the first thing he warns them about are those who will come and say, I'm the one. I've got the answers. I'll tell you what's right. Embrace what I teach you. These are the teachers that say what our what? Our itching ears want to hear. I love that expression. The time is coming when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but they will surround themselves with teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I don't know how many of you this past week saw Oprah Winfrey's speech at the Golden Globes. Anybody see it? Well, if you didn't see it, you ought to read it because it is a powerful picture of exactly what I'm talking about. Here's what Oprah said. She said, whatever your secret, live your own truth. Life is too short. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Well, besides that, I mean, there's something wrong with what she says, not just who says it, but what she says. Live your own truth. Live your own truth, which is to say, I've got my truth, you've got your truth, and the person behind you has their truth. And the key to success, the key to happiness, the key to enjoying life is to what? Live your own truth. Now, that's what the world wants to believe, that's what the world's taught, and people are eating this sort of thing up. But contrast that with what this fellow said. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if the world is out there telling you that the key to happiness and to success is to believe your own truth and as a Christian you are trying to live that Jesus is the truth, the only truth and the only way to the Father, you don't think there's going to be conflict? And one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to submit to Christ and face persecution from the world. Or you are going to capitulate to the world and deny Christ. Make no bones about it. Everything that we are going through right now in the world today as Christian people is about this. It is about truth. 
What is the locus of authority? What is the truth for the people of God? And that was the fight that Paul fought. And he fought it to the very last, till the moment when the executioner came and took his head off with a sword along the highway. Are you fighting that fight? Are you in the battle? The sad part is many Christians aren't even on the field. They're out there trying to live covertly as Christians. And I'm here to tell you, you can't do that. For friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. So the first thing Paul says is, I have fought the fight. I fought the good fight. Doesn't mean it's easy. Not even a guarantee that you're going to win. But he fought the good fight. Second thing he says is, I have finished the race. Now, Paul oftentimes uses this kind of imagery, this kind of language, the language of uh, military or an athletic competition. When he talks about finishing the race, let me tell you something, he's not talking about a sprint. <laughs> he's talking about a long-distance run. And this is not the only place that he uses this kind of imagery. Uh, keep your finger here and turn to, in, in 2 Timothy, and turn to Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3, and here's what Paul says, and I think this helps us to understand what he's saying to Timothy. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, he says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling Christ Jesus. Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have been striving for the goal, I've achieved the prize. What's the goal? What's the goal? You're almost there. This is a, this is a trick question. The prize is Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the fullness of that. The goal is to finish. See, oftentimes in a long-distance run, all you want to do is finish. <laughs> finish well. That's really what the Christian life is all about. It's about finishing well. I had the opportunity to preach a sermon uh, recently. And I preached on this very subject, the subject of finishing well. Let me tell you something. It is not how you start that matters. History is filled with examples of people who started off well, but they finished poorly. King Saul, Israel's first king, is a perfect example of this. This was a man who started off very well indeed. He was every inch of what you would imagine a king to be. But over time, we're told, even though the Spirit of the Lord rested on him initially, Saul eventually became proud and puffed up. All of the victories that he won over the Philistines, all of the things that he did as a governor, he began to think that these were the result of his own integrity, his own intellect, his own greatness. And we're told at one point, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. And when that happened, let me tell you, it was a downhill spiral. 
he lost the confidence of his subjects. He became so proud, so puffed up, that eventually he lost his grip on reality. We're told that Saul went insane. And how did he end? He ended by committing suicide in a battle against the Philistines. Here was a man who started off very well, but he finished poorly. On the other hand, history is also filled with examples of people who started off poorly, but they finished well. How many of you have ever seen the 1981 film Chariots of Fire? Okay, great movie, worth seeing again if you haven't seen it for a while. Go back and watch it. Um, it's the story of Eric Little, who was a famous Scotsman, ran in the 1924 British um, Olympic team, uh, the Paris Games in 1924, and led the nation to victory. But many people don't know the story of the qualifying heats. When he was um, trying to qualify for the Olympic team, uh, he was at a race. It was near Stoke-on-Trent. And the story goes that uh, as the gun was about to go off, and everybody expected that Eric Little was going to win the race. He was the favorite. When the gun went off, another runner, in an act of aggression, pushed Eric out of the way. And his feet became tangled. He lost his balance, and he took a very hard fall on the infield. And when he was finally back on his feet and he'd come to his senses, the other runners were already several meters down the track. And there was this great moan that went up all over the crowd. And you could hear people shouting, foul, foul, all across the stands. And everybody thought that this wonderful athletic career had just come to a tragic end. But Eric Little was no quitter. And he immediately jumped back on the track and he took off again. And there was an old man from Glasgow up there in the stands. And he, and he was sitting next to a young man. And the young man turned to him and he said, it's a fool's errand. He said, there, there's no way that Little can ever make up that kind of a deficit in a race like that with people like these. It's impossible. And the old man from Glasgow, who had seen Eric compete on any number of occasions, simply turned to him and said, ah, just watch, lad. His head's not back yet. And if you heard the sermon, then you know the story. Eric had this very unorthodox running style. He would throw back his head, open wide his mouth, and with his arms flailing at his sides like a giant windmill, he would take off. And people said it was like watching Mercury with wings on his feet. Before long, he had closed the gap. On the final lap, he was neck and neck with the lead runner. And as they came down the final stretch in one great heroic burst of energy, he thrust forth his chest, threw back his head, and broke through the line and won the race. And a professional trainer who watched the whole thing ran to his side. And as he helped Eric to his feet, and Eric was hyperventilating, he said, well, Mr. Little, that was not the prettiest 440 I've ever seen. <laughs> but it certainly was the bravest. Listen, folks, it's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. Paul started off poorly. He was a persecutor of the church. But he finished well. How are you going to finish? I'm not asking the question how you start off. Don't get me wrong. Starting off, well, hey, that's great. But if you run out of steam, if you lose sight 
The goal you see for the Apostle Paul was to finish the race. To keep the faith. And that's what he did. Theologians call this the perseverance of the saints. They persevere to the end, not because they do it, but because God the Holy Spirit perseveres within them. How are you finishing? Now some of you might think, well, I'm getting pretty close to the finish line. The reality is nobody knows, do we? We never know. God has a habit sometimes of moving it a little closer than we imagine the finish line. The goal for Paul was to finish the race and to finish it well. That was the goal. What was the prize? The prize was Christ himself. Matthew again. Matthew chapter 25. This is what Jesus says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was on my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, for in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the goal? The goal is to finish. What's the prize? The prize is to hear those words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with certain gifts, certain talents, and you invested them wisely in the kingdom of God. You did not foolishly squander the gift. You know, there are two things that are keeping me up at night right now. I'll give you a guess as to what one of them is. <laughs> In the midst of all of this lawsuit and everything, people have asked me, well, you know, what are we going to do if we're forced to leave? And as I've already told you, there is a plan B. The vestry is aware we have a plan B in the event that we have to. That's one thing that keeps me up at night, though. What we're going to do if we have to leave? 
You know the other thing that keeps me up at night? What we're going to do if we don't leave. Now why does that keep me up at night? Because I'll tell you, I believe that if God gives the property back to us, and it will be God that will do it, it will not be tech, but if God decides to give us the property back and deliver us by whatever means he sees fit to deliver us, he is going to expect that we do more with what we have been given than we have done in the past. He's going to expect us to take great risks for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and put it all on the line. And that is going to make some people, including the rector, uncomfortable. But that's the prize, to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so finally, what? He says, I have kept the faith. Earlier in this epistle, Paul described this as what? The good deposit. The good deposit. It's a treasure. Paul says, I have kept the faith. I've guarded the faith, this treasure that is ours. In 1 Corinthians, he describes this treasure, this faith, as true wisdom. If you want to know what wisdom is, you've got to come to the sermon today because that's exactly what I'm preaching on. The title of the sermon is A Word to the Wise. But it's not the wisdom of this world. It's the wisdom of God that when we embrace it begins to make sense of the world. As I was preparing this lesson, I thought about Hollywood and all that's been going on in Hollywood lately. You know, if Hollywood does anything at all, it glorifies sex. It glorifies sex. And then, lo and behold, it's surprised when people like Matt Lauer or Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein do what they do. Now, I'm not excusing their actions, but I'm here to tell you they are more the result than they are the cause of the problem. When the world is out there spewing a particular kind of knowledge, a particular kind of wisdom, and then it's surprised when people embrace it and do things that they find offensive, that's shocking to me. But there is another wisdom, the wisdom of God, which says love is patient, love is kind does not envy, it does not boast. Love never dies. Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. It's not easy. The wisdom of God is not easy. Love is not easily angered. Men, how many of you are not easily angered? How many times do we come down at the breakfast table when we lose our temper, we're shocked, or we're upset about something? I, I, I love to preach this at, at weddings. And, you, and you, you get up there and you start saying, you know, here's one. Love is not easily angered. How about that, men? And you'll see women. <laughs> but then I always say, and here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. But you see, that's hard work, isn't it? 
Love, as the Bible describes it, is not easy. It's not a second-hand emotion. It's not a feeling at all. It's a hard work. It's a commitment. It's dedication. Until death, we do part. Not until death or happiness depart. See, that's what we, we think. That, that I'm in this marriage as long as I'm happy because don't I have a right to be happy? Well, I can tell you right now, there are many times in my marriage where Kristen is not happy. I'm always happy, of course, in our marriage. This just this goes without saying, but, but, but she is not always happy. I understand that. You know, living with me is not always an easy thing. But thanks be to God, she doesn't just throw in the towel because it's hard. But the world says you have a right to be happy, and if you're not happy, then you have an obligation to yourself to get out. That's the wisdom of the world. And then we're surprised the culture is the way that it is. As Paul comes to the end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight. I fought for the truth. Even though it cost me, I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Paul finished well. How are you going to finish the race? That pressing question is before us all the time, my friends. Live in such a way that you'll be proud of what they put on your tombstone. Not what you will have them put on your tombstone, <laughs> but what people would put on your tombstone. Finish the race. Finish it well. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith, even to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he was true to his calling to the very end. Pray, Father, that we may follow his example which was really the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was faithful even unto the end, even to death upon a cross. We are involved in a struggle, Lord. It is a battle between truth and the lie. Grant us the grace, Lord, to be courageous. Grant us the courage to fight for the things that matter and, if necessary, to give up everything in the knowledge that death is not the end, it's just the beginning. This we ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.